Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, culminators. Thanks for joining us once again. I have a new friend. You know, you're used to me telling you, this is someone I've known for years online. It's the first time you ever sat face to face. It's not true about uh, John Davis. John Davis is cut from a different kind of cloth from the typical nerdy Ron Coleman friend. <laughs> um, he's a former sergeant in the US Army, 82nd Airborne. He was a forward observer in the three, 319th Artillery Battalion. Uh, he fought in Operation Just Cause in Panama in 89. Those of you who uh, are old enough to remember that. And the one, one seventeenth, the one, no, I'm saying that wrong. There's a slash in there. How do you say that, John? First of the 17th cavalry. The first and 17th? First of the 17th First cavalry. of. First of the 17th cavalry division scouts in Iraq as a ground laser team. Sounds very macho. Very tough, right? Well, it, it does. And it's not what this is about, but it does get better. <laughs> Uh, he was a he was a ground laser team leader for Desert Storm in 1991. Left the army in '92, joined the Orange County Sheriff's Department, working in the county jail. Which might have I don't know which was more grisly compared to that uh, compared to to his battlefield experiences. Um, moved on to the Whittier California Police Department in '94 and retired from policing after a little bit more action than he probably would have liked in 2004. Became a high school football coach, strength coach, track coach, father of many children, <laughs> and uh, martial arts, of course. Of course, you, you know, this guy is an absolute machine. His book is about, I would say, becoming an absolute human. So uh, we were introduced by mutual friends a short time ago. John, thank you for joining us on the program, and uh, tell us about your story. Tell us what. Tell us about your about your book, which I understand, and we'll kind of work our way back backward from there, talking about life. Man on the roof. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, it's obviously the the book is is more than just being on the roof. It's a lifetime. It's basically from my childhood and and the trauma I went through as a kid. You know the physical and sexual abuse that I had to deal with and how I made it through that. Um, my time in the where'd you grow up? Where'd you where'd you where'd you grow up? I grew up in La Habra, California, which is actually like Whittier, which is Los Angeles County. It's right next to it. It's adjacent city to that. So did all my growing up there in California. I was raised by a single mom. Ah, uh, okay. So that's that's a that's a key thing the single mom thing i mean sometimes it works out but it's it's an uphill battle right out of the box right out of the box yeah and she she was she's a great woman and uh she did the best she could um i was the youngest of three i had 
an older sister and a brother. Um, they were my, they had different fathers. I never knew who my father was growing up. Um, my mom didn't know, um, probably for obvious reasons, but, uh, yeah, she did the best she could. She worked a lot and I was left home a lot. And my uh, older sister and brother were, were pretty crazy. And it was <laughs> like a lot of teenagers are, uh, my brother was about two, three years older than me. And, you know, they all had their own issues and, and it was a very, uh, violent dysfunctional home, the best way to describe it. Obviously, like I said, a lot of, a lot of abuse in there. And, um, you know, I had some sexual abuse as a kid through a, a female, um, babysitter as well as some teenage boys in the neighborhood. So from an early start, yeah, it, it was a rough beginnings. It, it was definitely rough from the, the get-go. You found yourself in the army. Yes, sir. Your idea? Whose idea was that? That was my idea. I'd gotten out of high school. Um, I graduated early and I planned on playing college football. Um, my mom had actually lost her job and it was a little rough. So I thought I'd go into the military for a couple of years, get the GI bill come out. You know, I was still pretty young um, being 18. I thought I'd come back out and go, go back to college and, and play some football. Um, so I decided to join the military and got my GI bill and ended up at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Oh, where my father was stationed during the oh, Berlin crisis. Oh, wow. I mean, he was called up during the Berlin crisis into Fort Bragg. Um, yeah. And I think he was actually, he was attached. He was a he was a nerdy Jewish guy in the in, in a specialist first class, you know. <laughs> but he was attached to the eighty second also. All right. uh, or, uh, not exactly the killing machine, uh, <laughs> but but also the also the a, a child of a of a single mother didn't have quite the rough experiences you did. So, I guess you kind of liked it, right? Because you stuck around longer than two years. Yeah, I, I did. I got into it and I loved it. And I, you know, I played sports all my life. So that brotherhood of, uh, of playing and, and being there for your teammates was part of who I was and basically how I'm cut. Well, and male bonding is a male bonding is, is a big thing. And I think we're, I'm going to want to come back to that point when we talk about your journey okay. uh, to understanding, but I, the way I read it, understanding what being a man is and isn't about, and it's not a simple answer, obviously. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, but I did. I, I really, I, I loved it. I was around some great people, some great leaders. Um, probably about my third year when I, when I went to Panama and just cause and got a little taste of combat and seeing guys in action, seeing some really heroic actions and seeing some not so heroic actions, obviously, you know, being tested. And I think, you know, a lot of men, especially myself, we want to be tested and, and what's greater test than being in combat. And I, I got a taste of that in Panama. Um, you know, it wasn't heavy fighting by any means. I mean, in our initial assault, we almost got shot down. So that was probably the closest to dying I had. And I definitely thought I was going to die for, for a few seconds up and down the helicopter as we were getting shot at. Um, but when we hit the ground and, it, it, you know, bombs are going off and tracer rounds are going, it's like, man, this is, this is what I signed up for. And, and, and then at the end of that, and again, we didn't, we didn't face really heavy combat. But just being able to be tested in that environment, knowing that I could act, um, you know, and I was 20 years old at the time, I, I felt pretty good and I, and, I, and I liked it. And I was like, okay, I think this is what I was called to do. So, and this was something, I guess, not having a dad and having a mom who had these issues, you hadn't experienced a lot of growing up, this, this really affirm, you know, this affir affirmation of your capability to take responsibility, perform, you know, perform your duties, be trained well, and 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 that's that level of discipline and that level of achievement, I'm sure it was exhilarating. Oh, absolutely. And probably on a deeper level, what I kind of get into in my book was, you know, as a kid, I dealt with a lot of fear. Um, you know, 
again, growing up in the, in the home I did and, you know, my neighborhood I did, there, there was a lot of fear, you know, and, and I share this in the book, one of the, and I didn't like being scared. You know, I felt ashamed of being scared. And, you know, and I went through this process when I was about seven, eight years old. I don't even remember, you know, left at home alone, which I was a lot. And I was scared. And I was like, I'm not going to be scared anymore. And I, and I literally shut off all the lights in my house, slept on my couch, opened up the front door and slept that night. It was tough to get 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 to bed and, and get to sleep. But when I got up, I was like, okay. And, and it was a good and a bad thing. And it was good in the sense that when I faced fear, I wouldn't run from it. You know, um, I guess the, the negative part of that is sometimes I'd attack it vehemently. Um, if I felt any fear, especially as a teenager, I got in a, a lot of fights grow, growing up. And it wasn't because I didn't, I wasn't scared. It was the opposite. Everybody thought I was fearless as a kid. It was totally the opposite. If I felt fear, I was going to attack it. You know, so being in the military, being in those situations, knowing on that level, I could still act under, we were scared. I was scared. Absolutely. Before battle, you have fear. In that helicopter getting shot at fear. Tracer rounds going overhead, fear. How am I going to act? Can I think? Can I think clearly? Can I lead the men that, that, I, that I'm called to lead and do my job, which is, was being a forward observer for an infantry platoon in the 82nd Airborne Division? And, and I was, and I felt really good about that. And I felt like- Explain what a forward observer, what, is, what does a forward observer do? It sounds to me like what we would, people watching war movies would think of as a scout. Um, yeah, so basically what a Ford Observer, it was created after Vietnam, like Vietnam, um, the, the basically, usually it was the lieutenants, the infantry lieutenants who would call for fire, like artillery or close air support. And because they weren't experts and trained it all the time, a lot of times they would blow up their own men. So they created the position of a Ford Observer who that's our specialty. So when we're in combat and we could get assigned the infantry, we could get assigned artillery, um, armor units, we could get assigned the cavalry division scouts like I was at the end. But we'd be attached to those units. And then when they needed artillery or close air support, naval gunfire, any kind of indirect fire, could be from helicopters as well, we would be the ones actually calling for that fire. Are you so you'd be the guys who would be calling in the coordinates, is that as you would always hear people say? Yes, sir. Yep. This yeah. is this is where they really are. This is this is really where they you all that lieutenant knows is that over the hill, right? You know, there Charlie's out there. Yeah. You go and you find Charlie. Got it. Yes. So that's you're certainly and you know you're certainly confronting the fear thing. I mean, did you ever read um, G. Gordon Liddy's book Will? No, I didn't. It's it's about his what he went through as a becoming a tough guy. First, I think as a Marine and then in the FBI confronting conf whatever, whatever represented fear in his life, how he had to have complete mastery over it. I mean, I, I guess to a large extent, that's that is part of of every of every human being's life. Women don't necessarily expect, I think, as a general rule to overcome it as powerfully as men are expected to and expect them and expect ourselves to, to overcome it. Even, right. if, even if it's just the first time you hit a bully back. Uh, and if you never get in a fight again, which was my experience, because, because I hit the guy one time and I always felt that for the rest of my life, I gave up a, a vibe of this guy will hit you back or just, you know, and that's all. So, okay. you know, since then I haven't really had a problem. This, <laughs> this was, for, for, you know, 45 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so John, so 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 far so good. You're you know you're 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 in the service. You had Panama, and 
you know, you have to change your underwear a couple of times, but otherwise <laughs> you're, you're getting the hang of it. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, and I had a three-year commitment and after Panama, I was kind of in that place of like, I think I want to stay in this. So I just extended for two more years so I could have some more time to stay in the military and make a, a long-term decision. And then I ended up in, in uh, Iraq for Desert Storm. So that's a little bit more like, I mean, there were many aspects of that battle that were a turkey shoot, but a much more substantial engagement than the than the Panama, you know, uh, yes, situation. Right. Yeah, exactly. I thought I was actually going to go into war, which we did. Not quite the level I thought, but I, I thought we were. You had enough of it. 94 comes. You've, you've had your fill. Yeah, well, it wasn't it wasn't as simple as that because after my time in Desert Storm and you know going back a little bit, and my son was actually born when I was over there. My first son, I saw him when he was six months old when I um, returned home. Uh, but I loved it, and I, and I and I enjoyed that time. And you know, within five years, I was getting ready to be a staff sergeant, and my career was going really well. And and I really wanted to go to the next level. And and I my ultimate goal was to be in Delta Force because for us at Fort Bragg, we saw that compound. We didn't know what happened inside there. But, you know, one time in my whole career, I saw those guys walking in the woods. I was like, man, I was just like mesmerized by these big muscle bound bearded studs. And I'm like, that's what I want to be. Um, so I made that decision. Eventually, that's where I wanted to end up. I, I wasn't nowhere close to being ready for that. So I was going to go in the Ranger Battalion. And, and I talked to my recruiter. He got me everything I wanted, like Halo School, Scuba School. I was going to go to Ranger School. And I was set. And I, and I was set. My wife was good with it. Man, I was training. Like the shape I was in at the time was amazing. And I was actually on my way to talk um, for a, a uh, it's like a seminar for how do you move to your next station. And then I was going to go re-enlist driving there hundred percent dialed in and man, God hit me on the head. Like it was, it was the craziest thing. Cause I'm just driving all of a sudden it was just overwhelming so much. So I had to pull over off the road and think like what's going on like and it was this message not a voice not a light but this message like look you have a son you grew up without a dad you're going to do the same thing to your son and i was just i just sat there for a while and realized man i i can't do that i can't do it to him i got to be a father to my son and uh went home wow. to my wife she wasn't happy we got in an argument my recruiter was pissed but i just knew it's it like you know i didn't have that and i don't want my son to grow up without a father and i made a decision to get out that that's astonishing that's a gigantic sacrifice of ego and you know and personal per, you know your your personal ambition and your personal arc of achievement yes sir but yeah. that's not the end of the lesson obviously <laughs> no and and, and it kind of you know segues into the whole point of the book almost in the sense of that was a decision i made trusting god that was a decision not on just my own thought my own thinking and what I wanted but it was thinking outside of that to my family putting them first you know really asking guys this where you want me to be and that was a, a very it was a great decision because I got out of the military and I was able to be a father a good father for a sh amount of time until I failed again but that decision making process um if I would have made that if I would have utilized that throughout my life things would have been so different you know when I was on that roof I didn't do that. <laughs> well, tell us about the roof. There's a picture uh, in the book depicts you standing on a roof. Uh, I assume it's you. Yes, sir. Uh, and what what's the story? Because obviously, it, 
obviously the metaphor is of great significance. It is. I mean, the, the story of the roof was a call I had about five years into my my law enforcement career. Um, just a suspicious person. We got to the scene. He was under the influence of drugs. And me and my uh, one of my really good friends, even to this day, um, David Yoshitaki, we took off running after him, went over a bunch of yards. It was at night. It was a, it was one of those calls I still miss. I love the chase. I love the chase. I never missed it. I mean, I, I miss it to this day. Um, but we ran over a bunch of, jumped over a bunch of fences, dogs barking, people yelling. And then he got to, the suspect got to the house, climbed the tree. We climbed up on the roof after him. A uh, little, little fight ensued. Um, and then standing on that roof, um, I, I went into, you know, now I know what it was. It was, it was either a panic attack or, or, or some type of, you know, anxiety attack so much. So where I was dizzy, heart rate elevated, where I was, felt, felt like I was going to fall off the roof and I had to squat down. And I literally thought, I, I felt like I was just circling the drain. I just felt darkness. I felt hate. I felt bitterness. I felt anger. And it was, it was crazy. And I thought I was, I literally thought I was just going to die right there. Now, um, have you ever had that kind of intense in, um, experience in, in battle in the military? Or it's no, usually but, at a, it was a considerable remove from real, from real conflict, real, you know, actually face to face with your adversary. I, uh, yeah. I never had anything like that. And, and all the crazy stuff that I did and saw and was part of, and I'd already been in one shooting and many critical incidents prior to that in law enforcement, prior to that happening, never, I'd just get done with it. And just, we'd be like, yeah, that was cool, man. And, you know, not faking it, not fake bravado, but just, enjoyed i enjoyed the chase i enjoyed the fight in the sense of being again being tested now, this I, was I after you issues. this is when you were in whitaker right after yes, you whittier. after you had done your 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 tour as a prison a, a, a prison uh a corrections officer i guess yes sir yeah i only spent about six months in the prison because i did not want to be in in the jails for a number of years no, um, that yeah. that seems like a terrible terrible job I don't know how people do it for years. It's a terrible, terrible job. Yeah, I did not enjoy that. It was fun for a few months, but after that, you're like, okay, this is old. I can't do this for a long time. So you got back outside, but that intensity made you realize, well, I'm a human being here. Well, not initially. Like that, that craziness, honestly, it was like I was at home. Like I thought my life, and, and I looked at it this way, which it's true to some some respects as far as that what I went through as a kid and the violence I saw and having to deal with that being in combat all those things did prepare me for what I saw in law enforcement um, so when those things would happen I was much calmer than the guy who went to college and never really saw a lot and all of a sudden you know he's seen you know murder you know assaults different things you see as a, a police officer for me I'd seen so many things I was more prepared for that so I was able to handle those situations um, a little bit better at least for the initial officers until they were seasoned um, with those situations so it, it did help me but at the same time I mean that trauma adds up you know and that's why I look back and although I was a cop only at five years when this you know anxiety attack panic attack whatever happened to me it was a lifetime of trauma I mean from being a kid the military, um, all those things. I mean, we all, we all have a limit, you know, and, you know, at the Mighty Oaks, a program I work at, we always refer to our rucksack and, and we have this trauma and we just put it in that rucksack and we shove it down and we move on, you know, but at some point that rucksack overflows and when it overflows, mine did. And it finally hit that, you know, I've been shoving it down for a long time and it finally overflowed on that roof. Um, and, uh, 
you know, put me, put me in a dark place, put me in a place like I knew something was wrong. I knew I needed some help. I knew I needed to get help. I needed to reach out to somebody. I had a pastor I could have gone to. I had friends, but you know, so much pride, um, ego, as far as being a man, like we don't admit that stuff. Cause that's right, so this, this is the flip side of the male bonding Yes, sir. is that on the one hand, it can, it can provide tremendous support for a guy. And on the other hand, if it's not played just right, it can, it can make you ashamed to go back to the locker room or back to the, back to the station house, whatever the case may be, and face the guys who saw you not be a machine. Well, absolutely. And, and on top of that, I had a reputation at that point, you know, for being the guy you want on those violent calls. You know, if you're in a fight, you want me there. Um, you know, besides the military, just my, my my actions as a police officer, I'd been in one shooting at that point and, and many critical incidents, many fights. I was in an entry team. I've done many search warrants. Um, so at a short, short period of time, I'd established myself as that street cop you wanted. So it made it even worse. Like there's no way that a guy like me could could admit some weakness at that point. So then what happened? What did you do? Well, I did probably what a lot of us do in life. A lot of men do is pushed everything back in the rucksack. Pushed everything down, tightened up those screws on my mask, and went forward and just moved out. And then it got really bad. Tell me, tell me what happened next. Well, tell shortly me. after, you... shortly after that that period, um, I had a really good sergeant. Um, I love this guy. His name was Tom Lamping. Great man. Um, unfortunately, he lost his life. He had a rare um, cancer on his heart that took him really quickly. But he was just a great man and, and a guy I respected tremendously. A guy I looked up to. Um, probably one of the closest father figures that I've had in my life. Um, but he just looked at me one day and said, John, you're going to go to day watch. Cause I've been working weekend graveyards for most of my career at that point. And he's like, you're going to go to day watch. And then you're going to work the East end of the city. And the East end of the city is the more affluent area, less things happen. And I just want you to calm down. And I was pissed. I was angry, you know, but I wasn't, you know, I tried to convince him, but he wasn't having it. So I knew he meant business. So how long after this roof issue, a roof uh, event did that? Happen? I don't know exactly, but it was relatively short, probably, you know, I'm guessing a month or two. Um, and he sees there, you like twitching and, you know, I mean, what, uh, what, what do you think he picked up? He picked up because basically when I was at work, I'd just drive around looking for hot calls, listening for the radio, hot uh, call, uh, possibility of fights. Um, I didn't write tickets. I wasn't, I was just out there to find bad guys and, get my hands on somebody. Um, and, and in our city in Whittier, you know, if you're a good aggressive cop, it was pretty easy to find clients that were willing to uh, help you out in this area. Um, yeah, we had okay. plenty of those guys. Um, I knew where to look. And so an experienced I'm, sergeant knows that that's a pattern that he was he, able to pick He up. knew. He saw the changes in my personality, I'm assuming. He saw there were some issues. Um, he knew there were some issues at home with my family. So do you think, I mean, I, I know you're not a psychologist, but you've obviously given this a great deal of thought. Part of the process of shoving everything back in the rucksack was I'm going to now prove to myself and everyone around me that I'm every bit the beast that we all thought that I am. Oh, absolutely. That, that really, yeah, that hits it on the, on the head of that nail because for sure. Yeah. I just pushed harder. I pushed harder in my training, my martial arts training at the time, my strength training, training guys at work. Um, my whole mentality, it just got harder. It's like, man, that was weakness to me. I, like I was showing weakness in myself, ashamed of that feeling, not understanding it. Yeah. Not, I didn't want to ever feel that way again. 
So I, yeah, I, I absolutely pushed harder. I wanted to prove not just to other people, but really to myself, because I was the only one who knew that happened. I didn't tell that to anybody at the time. Nobody. Your partner, your partner didn't know about it. I had no idea. So when we were on the roof, and I was, I was talking to Yosh um, about this, and he had no idea. You know, we've been great friends for many years. Um, but I was telling him about it and he's like, he had no idea. He was on top of the suspect. This guy was all methed out. He was on methamphetamines and he was holding them down when this was all going on. You know, all I really remember at, when I was in that moment was hearing him say, Hey, John, let's go. We got to get him off the roof. And it just kind of, okay, you know, get up and help get this guy off the roof. And, you know, and even after that call, it was kind of crazy because we ended up going to the hospital. This guy almost died. Me and Yosh were in the emergency room. I didn't write about this in the book. But the guy almost died and his lungs were filling up and we were part of the surgery. The, the, the doctor had to go in there and basically take these clippers and break his ribs and drain the, the blood that was coming out of his lungs. And I remember sitting there, we were looking at each other like, oh, should we be in here holding these guys during a surgery like this? Um, but I guess so. Emergency room in Whittier, they, they let you do it. So we were assisting the doctors in that surgery. But in fact, you're also experiencing more trauma. This is a traumatic thing for especially someone who's not a surgeon. As tough as you are, that's not some. That's that is not a therapeutic experience after what you had gone through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there, and for probably a week or two after that, we were. They didn't know if he was going to live or not, and uh, so you know we had that that fear or nervousness. Even though everything we did was right, you're still nervous. You don't want that. You don't want somebody to die in a case like that, and knowing what's going to happen after that. If it did, did if he did die, so. There was some of that afterwards as well. So you're assigned now to kind of soft, soft duty for a while. <laughs> yeah. What happened? So they, well, I was going to show them. They put me on. Yeah. Yeah. You started yeah, fighting with lawn boys? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, wait, are those those crazy hicks? No, I mean, the guys, you know, the guys who take care of people's lawns and the pool oh. boys. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I did take care of the lawn of that side of the city, and it, it, it was a uh, female gangster that was wanted for shooting and and uh, stabbing people. So I went to. So what happened is driving around angry. I went to a domestic violence call. I get there, and as I'm walking up to the house, and I not good officer safety. Um, I knew it was a female. It was two females in this domestic violence. And I'm like, I didn't even wait for backup. I'm walking up there. And then the one person comes running out, yelling obscenities, gets in, gets in her vehicle. And I see her reaching for something. So I put myself in a position, pull my gun on her. And I'm in a pretty good tactical position, kind of behind a tree. And she looks at me. And I think she realized that she couldn't really turn, that I had the advantage position. She just peeled out, raced out of the scene. Um, I was too far away from my car to, to get in there and, and chase after her. Um, but I found out who she was. Um, she ended up having a Nobel warrant. She had been wanted for stabbing a bunch of people. She was a known gang member, third striker. So I was like, I was pumped. I was like, all right, you put me in the east end of the city. You want me to, to, to do this? Nope. So I, so I got all her information and I basically went on the hunt for her every oh, single God. day. I'm just like, I'm out for investigation. Don't give me calls. And I just searched for her and I searched for her every day, all day. And then one day I found her, you know, and I, and I pulled up and she was getting out of a vehicle and, um, you know, put her at gunpoint. She, she tried to pull her gun out. Um, I probably could have uh, shot her at that point, but she was known for having a knife and you get these preconceived thoughts. Like she, she was known for carrying a butterfly knife. 
So we, if you know about how you open up a butterfly knife, that's what I thought she was doing. She was trying to open up a butterfly, but she was trying to get the gun out of her waistband. Um, so she wasn't able to do it, got back in the vehicle. And then we got in the, you know, probably one of the funnest vehicle pursuits I've been in. Um, she was just gunning that thing, wrong side of the road, crashing into people. We almost get in shooting in front of a high school. She gets in another crash. And then I get put in a bad situation because she starts heading towards me. So I thought she was going to ram me. Um, but instead she's called from backup yet at this point. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm calling it all in, but I'm pretty being in the East in the city. You're away from the majority of officers. So nobody was with me at this point until the very end. Yeah. But as she's going by me, she slows down and she's shooting at me. And just one of those things, like certain things you don't forget. And I just saw the craziness in her eyes. I see the gun, the, the, the gun recoiling as she goes by me, didn't hit my vehicle. Um, None of, none of the rounds hit my car, but I mean, I clearly saw her as she drove by. And it's like, it seems like slow motion. Like when I'm telling you about this, I, I totally remember it exactly clearly, you know? So um, whipped around, finally caught up to where her vehicle was. She had flipped over. Um, there was a moment where I didn't know where she was, had a little bit of fear at that time. And then I saw her running down the street and started chasing after her. Uh, she went up onto a driveway in the middle of the day and it was also, I didn't realize at the time, right across the street from a, a nursery. Um, but she went up on the top of the driveway and kind of stopped, you know, and just paused a little bit. And of course I'm yelling at her, giving her commands, drop your gun. And then she turned around, raised up, raised her gun. And I shot her multiple times. Another officer, which I didn't realize at that time had come up right when this happened. And he, he sh shot her too. So we ended up hitting her, I think it was 19 times um after that which it seems like a lot but it you know it, it goes pretty quick you know and that's what people don't realize i mean that that happens in an instant um as far as the number of rounds being fired but she ended up not dying she was paralyzed and had some obviously issues with it but uh yeah so you know they put me on the east end of the city and i guess they figured at that point it doesn't matter where they put me i'm gonna get into something trouble found you trouble found me yeah and you helped it a little bit too yeah yeah, 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 I did. And that was a big turning point in my life, absolutely, after that second shooting. Big, big, big turning point in my life. And, you know, the best way I could probably describe that feeling and thoughts in my head was I had this thought in my head that I've been lucky, right? I've been getting combat a couple of times and, you know, 70, 80 jumps in an airborne unit, um, been a police officer shootings, and I'm still alive. So I'm just lucky, right? which no credit to God, no credit to anything else. I'm just lucky. So sometime my luck's going to run out and I'm like, I'm going to die at some point doing this job and my life sucks. You know, talk about being a victim and feeling sorry for myself. Not that I thought like that then, like, oh, I'm a victim, exactly what I was doing. And I'm like, I'm not happy. And and I want so instead of instead of feeling I'm I'm a God. I obviously I can there's nothing I can't get away with. That, that didn't occur to you at all. What occurred to you was I'm playing this out. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that at some point the the nature and the, the, the type of police officer I was, and, you know, sometimes it is luck, you know, sometimes it is luck staying alive. And, you know, when bullets have cracked over my head, what's the difference of the bullet cracking over my head or are in my head, <laughs> you know, luck. Right. So what'd you do? So I just, I just, well, again, I think what I what I did was opened up 
a huge hole in the perimeter of my life. I mean, we all have a moral compass. We have this perimeter set up around our life, things we allow in, who we want to be, what we think is all right as a man, you know, and everybody's an individual, but I knew what mine was. I always, from the age of 17, I wanted to be a man of God. I wanted a family. Easy. And it's never, ever changed. Even at that moment, if you would have asked me, I would have said that, but that wasn't how I was living. It wasn't the actions of my life wasn't reflecting that. So when I made these thoughts, it's like, I just want to be happy. It wasn't like I wanted peace. I wasn't wanting joy. I wasn't wanting purpose. Man, I just wanted to be happy and feel good. My, me and my wife were at odds and, and you know, mostly my fault. Um, we did not like each other. Um, very little intimacy, you know, and already at that point as a police officer, you know, most guys struggle with lust. And then when you're not having an intimate, intimate relationship with your wife at home, Man, I think it was just a it was a recipe for disaster with that mindset. And I really feel when I made that decision in my head, like I want to be happy, man, again, that hole in my perimeter. And I and I refer to this in my book because I think it's for me, it's the best analogy, like Lord of the Rings, like the, the two towers. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but in the second one, when they're when they're attacking Helms Deep and they're fighting, they're fighting. That was kind of like my life. And then at that one point, one of the the orcs or they ran in with that bomb and blew that hole open. And then all the orcs came flying in that, that gap. Well, after that shooting and I made that decision, that's what it was like. I was just allowing the enemy to come into my life and how that looked for me was a woman of my past, a girl from my past. And of course it was a girl that I had a crush on. She was my, one of my friends, um, older sisters that everybody liked. And she was the, the pretty girl of the city. And, there I saw her in, in Whittier. And as soon as I looked at her, I, I knew in my head, it's like, well, now I'm the cop. Now I'm this, this guy, you know? And uh, sure enough, you know, I, I stepped outside my wife and in relation with her. And then, man, those are some dark years after that because it wasn't just her, it was other women. And I was just at a point where I really didn't care if I lived or died. I was just living on the edge. And I, and I say it running hot and I was running hot. You because know? You, you had identified happiness as a goal, which in fact is largely an unattainable goal. As a, it's not a sustainable goal to always be happy. It's not, as you say, meaning, it's not purpose, it's not fulfillment, and it's not godliness in and of itself. Yes, sir. So it's there you are. So, so you're drilling a, the hole deeper and really kind of shoving even more and more stuff into the rucksack. Yes. Yeah, it was it was some dark times, um, you know, just driving to work at times, just screaming at the top of my lungs. I might have got an argument with my wife or something and just driving 120 miles an hour down some side street, just not caring if I if I lived or died. And I just got to get the work because I got to get my hands on somebody, you know, I, I, because for me, the only my drug, you know, I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't do drugs. But my drug was was literally, you know, those hot calls, being in fights. If it wasn't that, then I'd be looking for a girl at work. And when I wasn't at work, you know, I would be lifting weights or doing martial arts or surfing. I had to move because the times I stopped moving were the times when I had to think. And when I thought it got dark and those dark thoughts, well, what can get me out of this, you know? So it was a world focused on, on select types of physical satisfaction. You didn't go for drugs. You didn't go for drinking. But the physical, the, the physical conflicts, uh, including, you know, working out which is a kind of conflict against gravity uh, and 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 the chicks yes sir so then okay 
we, we, we're having this discussion because something else has to have happened. <laughs> yeah, that, that continued. And, and, and during those years, you know, I ended up leaving my wife once and, it, you know, and uh, um, being in other relationships, like I said, and, and then my kids were suffering. And that was a thing that was just, you know, I thought, okay, we'll be apart and it'll be okay. You know, we'll be better, better parents. And that didn't work out. And, and my kids were suffering pretty bad. And I was like, okay, I, I got to go home and I got to do this. And I went home, but I still wasn't living, a, being a godly man. I wasn't, I was still in other relationships, trying at home, but you know, you can't live two lives. And that's what I was trying to do. And this continued for a number of years. And, and it was kind of the same pattern, you know, girls, violence, keeping myself busy, finding myself sitting on my bed, holding my Glock, thinking about, man, this is the only way out, but I can't do that because I got boys. Um, and then was April 4th, 2003, uh, we had a call. <laughs> well, it was a call with a man with a gun and this was my third shooting. And it was, it was kind of a, when the call went out, I was sitting in my sergeant's desk um, getting reprimanded because I'd helped the deputy, a deputy a few weeks early had, had called for help. Um, and I went to the scene, it was a little bit outside our city and I wasn't able to get on the radio and tell them where I was, which they always want to know where you are, but there was so much radio traffic. I didn't have time, but that wasn't going to stop me from helping this deputy. And I was actually the first officer on scene, helped the deputy who was getting his butt kicked. Um, the, de the deputies, the Los Angeles sheriffs were really happy and thankful to me. They were going to give me accommodation. And then I was sitting in this office getting reprimanded because I didn't put myself out on the radio by a sergeant who had spent very little time in the field and wasn't known as a great street cop with very little experience. So I was pretty irritated. So when the call went out, I just got up and I'm like, I'm going to go handle this man with a gun. And then when I get done with that, I'll come back and sign you a reprimand. And I was kind of a jerk. And I just walked out, got in my car and I was flying down Whittier Boulevard, the main drag of our city as fast as I could to get, cause I had to get to this call. There was a man with a gun and I needed this. Um, I needed it. And I got there, sprinted to the scene and then Sergeant Lamping, the, the Sergeant I told you about, um, great great man saw me and he said john you're you're going in me and and, and another guy named john lewis and dean montgomery three got two two outstanding officers guys i'd worked on the entry team with really good and i felt like all right man i felt like he looked at me 10 15 officers there at the scene he picked me to go in and, and i felt uh i don't know if it was proud or prideful or just like man he respects me and i respect him so much and i'm going to do the job you know we went into this house it was a guy who was uh he, he, he had been 5150, so he'd been locked up for, for being unstable, like a threat to himself or someone else weeks prior. Um, he was actually sitting on a couch writing a letter. He was going to go kill a bunch of people, and then he was going to shoot it out with the cops, which was on the letter. The homeowners were out of the house, and, and they, they told us, hey, go in, and this is what's happening. We saw him on the couch. He didn't know we were there, and uh, we, we, we made entry. And as, we, as soon as we made entry, my partner, who was right in front of him, um, the guy, he, he dropped his pin, looked up at him and uh, actually looked up at him, dropped his pin, reached down and got his gun, pulled it out. And then we all fired multiple times into the sky. And that was my last night working as a police officer. And the thing about that, that shooting is the thing that, that I felt something was off with me is, is I walked outside of, of that shooting and it was like nothing in me. And it wasn't like being, oh, I just killed the guy. Cool. Like, that's what I do. It wasn't like that. It was just a deadness and I felt dead and numb and nothing. Like all I was thinking in my head is like, Oh, I'll probably get some days off paid, paid and some little extra money for this. And maybe I'll get a week or two off and cool. Right. Didn't feel anything. And I thought at that time, I'm like, man, something's off. It wasn't like a, like usually all the things I've been involved with, there was some adrenaline. So I'm like, man, we made it out. Those feelings 
there was in, in, in me. It was just, I felt dead. And I knew, I knew again, it was off. And, you know, of course I go off work and I, I get sent to a psychologist and the psychologist asked me, he's like, how you doing? I'm like, great. You know, I mean, it's good. Sh- Shoot, clean shoot. It was an open 911, which was great. It made me feel good about, you know, it's on there. It's on there hearing our commands, hearing what happened, everything lined up. So I wasn't worried about that aspect. Um, I'm like, I feel good. You know, I'm ready to go back to work. But my psychologist, his name was Dr. Blum, a uh, really good man. And he just kind of looked at me and I think he was smart enough to realize, say, hey, not to tell me, yeah, you're not ready to go back to work. He goes, well, I want you to take a couple weeks off, kind of take a vacation, decompress a little bit. You've been involved in a lot of stuff. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take a vacation. And during that time, I was like, I started thinking about where I was in life and who I was and looking at that person in the mirror and didn't recognize him. You know, it's like, how did I become this person? You know, so far outside of who I wanted to be as a man, you know, at 17 years old, I knew I wanted to be a a godly man. I knew I wanted a family and I wasn't living that life. It was all fake. And when, when, when I came to that realization, I just had that, that moment of clarity was like, man, this is not who, who I want to be. And then my, my psychologist, Dr. Blum, started suggesting maybe retiring. And I started just thinking about the idea a little bit. And, you know, I threw away all the numbers of the girls. And I just made this decision that I'm going to stop doing that. I'm not going to live that life. And that's what I did. And, and I stopped it. Got out of that life. I'm going to be a family man. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be a father. I'm going to be a husband. And I did all those things. But there was something I didn't do. And, and this was the key thing and why I ended up back in the same place years later is because I took no accountability. I wasn't honest with my wife. I didn't ask her for forgiveness. I didn't tell her about any of those things. I didn't ask God for forgiveness. I just made behavior changes. And eventually behavior changes don't last. You know, you have to have a heart change. And there was no real true heart change by taking accountability for what I did. And I just moved on with my life. And it, was, and it worked for a while, but it didn't last. This is fascinating to me because you describe an upbringing that doesn't necessarily bring a lot of people to introspection or self-awareness. But as you tell the story, you're describing things you thought, things you thought about yourself, things about you thought about the choices you were making, feelings that you were shoving down to the rucksack. And you even said that you always identified yourself as someone who wanted to be a godly man. So where'd you get these values? Where did you get this self-awareness? What do you think you were just born with it? Because some people I think are. Well, I can tell you exactly where I got it from. I mean, you know, growing up in my house, I knew it wasn't right. I knew the things that happened to me weren't right. I knew I didn't like it. I knew how I felt inside. And when I started playing sports, um, I, I, I was a pretty good athlete. And I got put on this team and I look at it like, like the mighty duck one side of the tracks. And then you got like the, the rich team. I forgot the name of that team. I was on the poor kids team, but because I was a good athlete, I got put on the rich kids team, which was great with me. I didn't really care. It was a good team. I liked everybody on my team. And I went to this guy, this kid's house named Danny Smedley. And as I was sitting there, we were eating dinner and this was the change. This is what changed my life. As far as family, I saw a family sitting there smiling, talking. I saw Mrs. Smedley come up to Mr. Smedley, Kathy and Don Smedley. And I saw her ask her husband, hey, do you want some more food? And she smiled at him. He looked back at her and said, sure, thank you. Something, something to that effect. And I was blown away. I was like, what am I seeing here? What am I witnessing? I want this. Human this is kindness. amazing. 
kind, kindness and lovingness and love. that. And I was probably about nine, 10 years old at this point. And I saw that. And at that moment, this is what I wanted. And that put a fire in me for sports. And I thought, okay, well, if I can make it in sports, it got me to this place. I can have the happy family. So I, my, my fire and, and drive um, in sports was with that. It wasn't to have money or fame or so everyone knows me. It was to have a happy family. And as far as my faith goes, I was always, I always revered, had a reverence for God. You know, I prayed, you know, in this, you know, I prayed at night when, you know, when I was listening to violence in the other room at times and hearing other things going well, on. Did your mom teach you that there is a God? I mean, yep. how'd you even, how'd you even know about it? You're growing up in California. Like, you're growing up in <laughs> <Not> Babylonia. <laughs> exactly. Right. But we, we went to church for a time. Um, I remember that as a kid and, uh, Besides that, I, I, you know, I always had a belief. I never questioned if there was a God or not. I knew there was. And even in my situation, I mean, just laying there, like literally reaching my hands out to him, asking him to change my family and help us and help me get through this. Um, I believed it was, but I didn't know what the Bible said. And, you know, I didn't know about Jesus and scripture and until I was 17 and my first wife took me to church and I heard the gospel message and who Jesus was. And I was like, salvation i want that you know and she took me to the pastor he so came. it gave you a it did give you a frame a framework even though you, from the smedleys through the through sports teams through your wife's influence even though you weren't able to really integrate it into yourself it did give you a framework of what right and wrong are and 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 that there is a god in the world and that you had probably something you needed to do to get square with him. Yeah. Okay. That's yes, a big sir. deal. That because I, I think very few people are, are are growing up with that awareness at all today, even ones being raised by two married parents. Uh, okay. What was it that made the difference then at, at, at the end of the story? Not the end, but when, <laughs> in other words, when you said, I've done all this behavior modification, because after all, you know that you have discipline. You were looking to be, you're right, to become a Delta Force guy. And you knew that if you applied yourself to it, you probably could get it done because you had discipline. You understood what it takes to achieve a goal. So you had pulled yourself back to be disciplined again. You're achieving the goal of being a well-behaved member of society and a dad but you realize that you're still missing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, think, I think the missing part was dealing with the heart and, and, you know, those, those things, you know, by not being accountable, not being accountable to God, not being accountable to my wife, that, that bitterness, that unforgiveness in my heart just ate at me, you know, and it ate at me and it was eating me up. And, and eventually behavior changes, man, are, are, are probably more dictated by our heart and what's inside us. And what was inside me was still that rotting from all those things I'd done and not, not told my wife, not told, not really reached out to God and asked him for forgiveness, you know, just kind of pushing it down like it did so many other things. But this was a much deeper thing. This is a serious thing. So when times started getting hard like they did, then I just went back to, you know, that bitterness becomes anger. You know, and, and anger through anger, you're right, we're right, right? We can get angry. And if I'm angry, then I'm right. That's not the case. <laughs> you're usually wrong when you're angry. And, and I just get, got more angry and more angry at my wife. 
And uh, man, I, and I remember, man, one thing that I'm really regretful of is, is that it was at one point, you know, she was saying something and I just started yelling at her and I, and, and I told her, um, you know, look, I mean, Seth is going to be 18, right? And when he's 18, I'm, I'm gone. I said, so you better figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. You know? And, and as I said that to her, she basically just crumbled to the floor crying. And, and I, you know, and I did, I mean, I felt a little bit bad for sure. Um, but I didn't show it. I was just, I was more like, man, that's what, that's what you get, you know, and definitely a regretful, remorseful point. And, and that point was kind of like that point I had when I said I wanted to be happy. It was opening up again. I reopened up that perimeter of my life. And, and shortly after that, that enemy, he came in with a woman, you know, a woman of the area. And I started another relationship outside of my wife and it had been, you know, I've been retired at that point, probably about, gosh, I think it was about 10 years at that point. Yeah. I've been going to church and, you know, living the Christian life on the outside, but never dealing with the heart. And eventually that caught up with me. And uh, again, ended a relationship, but this time my wife found out about it and uh, it was chaos, you know, and all chaos I deserved. Absolutely. But it, it was, it was, chaos and it was a rough time for my boys because my my oldest son at this time he was uh, headed to Boise State on a football scholarship um and you know we ended up separated his senior year and him just kind of figuring it out and my younger son stayed with me for a while then he wasn't talking to me and then I start moving six months after getting divorced from my first wife I thought it was a great idea to meet a girl and a couple months later get married again <laughs> yeah and that lasted not what even could go months. wrong yeah, what could go wrong? And I think that lasted six months. And I think in a man, about a three or four year span of time, I probably moved 15, 20 times and my life was just a mess. Um, ended up renting a room from a kid I'd coached in high school years before. And, and basically like financially, just barely having enough money to put gas in my car. My son's out of Boise State going to school and he's doing well in school. Uh, but our relationship is, it's not great. My youngest son, not talking to me and I don't blame him. Um, man, just barely holding on to my job as a strength coach. But, you know, being in that place, sadly for, for me is where I needed to be. And, and and people have a, you know, term rock bottom. We hear this now, where's my rock bottom in life? Well, that that was definitely mine, you know? And, and even though I, man, I wish I could change the past. I can't, I, I'm thankful for being there because again, that's where the, really the foundation of, of who I am today and the man I want to be started because I realized there that, you know, what I needed to do to be that man. And it started look started by looking in the mirror and being accountable, you know, as simple as that is like, how did you change your life, John? People ask me that, man, I looked in the mirror and I took accountability and we've discussed, you know, my, my childhood. I mean, man, it sucks. <laughs> Physically and sexually abused as a kid will really mess you up. Seeing combat and the amount of death, Police, being a police officer, taking somebody's life, man, and, and the, the atrocities I've seen as a police officer in those 10 years and the number of death and taking people's lives, man, there's a lot of stuff, you know, but the thing is, I knew the truth, you know, and it was hard, but I, I knew what the truth was. I knew how I should walk. I clearly knew it and I chose differently. You know, and, and and in that room, I was 44 years old at the time, is when my life truly changed because I took full accountability for that. I asked God, I mean, literally, figuratively, got down on my knees, asked God for forgiveness, um, tried to reach out to my first wife and ask her for forgiveness, started reaching out to my boys, 
and, and really it was the point in my life when I, when I put God, as I referred to, he was in my backseat, man, now he was driving this bus, you know, and I didn't know what that looked like because my life was a mess at the time. Um, but I, I didn't care because wherever he, he took me is where I was going to go. I didn't care what that meant, man. I, I remember thinking this too. It's like, that means I'm going to be holding up a John three sixteen on the side of the road, whatever, wherever you want me to go, God, that's what I'm going to do. Because in that moment, in that time, I had peace. I mean, I had peace, like it's undescribable knowing like, look, man, I'm going to live my life with my eyes up and, and just keep pushing forward and wherever, whatever happens, happens. And, uh, and, and again, this was 10 years ago now when I, when I made this change and it hasn't been easy <laughs> for sure, but, but being in that room, that was my mindset. And, and I, I was going to use, like you said, I had discipline, you know, I, I, I had strength when I was going to use. And in fact, your entire experience with discipline was about domination domination over yourself domination over military enemy over 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 uh criminal suspects over over your wife over situations that was your idea of how to be the man that you had never seen modeled in your own home although you had seen it in a smedley's house it was basically your model for success in life was domination and will when you describe putting god into the driver's seat, you're saying, I don't run the world. I don't run the world. And not only that, the entity that does run the world, who is God, is is okay. I can trust him. I can trust where he's driving. I'm I can allow myself to be, I don't want to say passive, but not in the drive, not in the driver's seat. That's a gigantic, that's a gigantic thing. You obviously were born with a great deal of conscience you, that's just that that's a form of of, of grace mm. uh, you know that to be able to to see that you needed help that you needed to be a, a better man that you weren't living up to your own standards that you knew that the worst standards you know there there is a, i think a lot of scenarios with guys who have experiences like yours just ending up saying you know i'm the, the most ornery son of a bitch in the valley and that's what it's all about mm. and it and, and you know it's if the world won't won't operate on 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 my terms, then f it. I'm you know, and and they die bitter and alone. Oh man, that you you described it exactly. I mean, that was me. That's a lot of men. Uh, a lot of the guys I work with, the veterans and and first responders that go through our programs at Mighty Oaks. Mighty, uh, that's mighty. Oaks. That's a, and that's a, and that's a veteran support organization, right? Yes, sir. Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs. Um, yeah, and, and, our, and our website is mightyoaksprograms.org. Uh, um, but yeah, it, it's a nonprofit faith-based program I got involved with almost seven years ago, um, which has been amazing. And we do week-long programs, um, really focusing on 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 military and veterans, um, and, as well as first responders. Um, just, just helping them work through those issues, you know, that you go through in, in the life, and it's men's and women's program. Um, but it, you it, know, it, I'm sorry, John, it, it, it's, a, it's a, I have to believe it or not, we've been talking for almost an hour. Wow! And if, if anyone's still listening to us, I wouldn't be surprised because your story is so amazing. <laughs> but I, I, I I'm you. afraid we're gonna we're, we're we're gonna lose what's left. Ultimately, you've been happy for the last 10 years, but not the kind of happiness that you were searching for when you said, I want to be happy. <laughs> I, I've been I've had peace for the last 10 years. Not always happy, but peace is so much better than happiness and had purpose. And that's 
man, that's, that's what life's about finding purpose and finding peace. And that's really where joy is. And, and there's been a lot of hard times. And, you know, at the end of the book, you'll, you'll, the last seven years, I've had some hard times and things I've had to work through. But Are I'm you married like, now? Yes. I've been married for, for how many years is this now? <laughs> uh, I think seven, eight years. My wife's probably going to kill me about that, but the, to an amazing woman, she was a veteran too. And um, I have, I've had, Three, three, three of my step boys. I don't think of them as my step boys. I got the raise and we're close as ever. And we're actually adopt our, our seven-year-old's a, a, a little boy. We're in the process of adopting. We've had him for um, four and a half years now, almost five years. So it's amazing. Five grandkids. Um, so yeah, we're, we're pretty lucky and we're pretty blessed and definitely happy. And, uh, you know, a great life, with, not without challenges for sure. John, you have an incredible story that you, that you've, I'm sure told in the book and that you You've really told us over the last hour and you've made, given me the opportunity to think a lot of, uh, about a lot of the things as different as my circumstances are from yours. Every man does come to terms or fails to come to terms with these issues. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to, what, what, what should the role of God be in my life? Can I allow myself, and I think this is really a problem for Americans in particular, will I let anyone including the master of the universe, tell me what to do. Okay. And someone who is like you, who's a, who's a bruiser and physically adept and has something to prove. It's hard to accept being, you know, accepting discipline and accept, accept, you know, accepting you know, that there's something bigger than you, but they, you know, they say in alcoholics and anonymous that, that, that that's the first step. Mm -hmm. There's something bigger than you. And however you, you know, however, whatever you want to call it, there's something bigger than you. That's a big challenge for us in our time. John, thank you so much. I wish I wish it was a two hour show because then <laughs> we could start talking about really interesting issues. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I thanks like for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. I'd come back on anytime. Thank you very much. Maybe you will. Thank Catch you, you later. God bless. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.